think you've just seen the playbook for future presidents. Don't ever give them anything because you saw what happened to Nixon. He, he was forced to resign. Trump, look at the way he played it. He just refused. He refused to recognize a co-equal branch of government. And he prevailed. That's the way you win. Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the law, the Constitution, the rule of law, impeachment, and I guess maybe now the wheels finally coming off constitutional democracy as we know it. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I cover all those things, except perhaps the last, uh, for Slate. Um, And where you are right now, it's probably, possibly Saturday morning, but where I am right now, it's actually Friday afternoon. Uh, That means that we are in the middle still in my head of an historic impeachment trial in the Senate, which may or may not actually be over by the time this show turns up in your feeds. Let's just briefly adapt the Chinese blessing slash curse. May we all live in fractionally less interesting times. So, okay, tomorrow, Sunday, we're going to be bringing you the promised second episode of our huge five-part election meltdown series. That's the one we're doing in tandem with Professor Rick Hassan and his election meltdown book. Uh, Now, we're bringing you election meltdown in no small part because we believe associating ourselves with the remarks of Senator Lamar Alexander on Thursday that whatever happens at this point in the Senate is just for show. Real change is going to have to happen in November at the ballot box. Now, if you've been listening to Election Meltdown, you probably know that free and fair elections aren't quite the magic bullet that Senator Alexander would have you believe. Nevertheless, let's all agree it's now pretty clear that the 2020 elections may be the sole mechanism capable of checking and balancing an administration that this week openly argued that if the president does it just to win elections, it's not impeachable. So here. An extra amicus just for you attempting to put this truly epic two weeks into some kind of perspective and context with the explicit caveat that nobody knows what is going to happen by 5 a.m. Saturday. And we're super, super sorry that we're not as good at predicting the future as we are at analyzing the past. My guest today is Professor Barbara McQuaid. She teaches criminal law at the University of Michigan. Barbara served as the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan and also as Vice Chair of the Attorney General's Advisory Committee and co-chaired its Terrorism and National Security Subcommittee. As U.S. Attorney, Barb oversaw cases involving public corruption, terrorism, corporate fraud, theft of trade secrets, civil rights, health care fraud, among other things. She also serves as a legal analyst for NBC News and MSNBC, and her writing appears pretty much everywhere you need to be. Her Twitter feed has been even more indispensable this last few weeks than usual. I've wanted to have Barb on the show for forever, Why not pick the week in which Senator Alexander declaimed that for purposes of this impeachment trial, quote, there is no need for more evidence to prove something that has already been proven. So, Barb McQuaid, welcome finally to Amicus. Delighted to be with you. And I I confess, I I actually don't even know where to begin, but I wonder if we could start just with the theory of the case, Uh, because I think we have in two short weeks slid quickly from he didn't do it, no quid pro quo, to yeah, he did it, we all know it, but so what? 
And I, I hesitate to play Alan Dershowitz saying the things that now Alan Dershowitz says Alan Dershowitz did not say. But I think this was the moment in which the claim that if the president did it, it isn't illegal because he just really, really wanted to get reelected became his defense. So let's play it for a minute. Every public official that I know believes that his election is in the public interest. And mostly you're right. Your election is in the public interest. And if a president does something which he believes will help him get elected in the public interest, that cannot be the kind of quid pro quo that results in impeachment. Okay, so Barb, I guess when you heard that your head blew off, and we should also stipulate that Dershowitz now says he didn't mean that thing that he said with his face. And uh, I think that Patrick Philbin, one of the president's other lawyers, says that that's not the theory of the case. But can you let's start from the moment that you heard that. What is it exactly that Dershowitz is saying there? Well, I, I think one of the things, you know, they began with the argument that to be an impeachable offense, it must be a violation of a criminal statute, which it goes against all scholarship, all history, including the impeachment articles against President Nixon um, and, and President Clinton. It goes against the history of impeachment of judges who've been impeached for intoxication on the bench, for example, not crimes, but certainly uh, demonstrating that you're unfit to serve in the office. Um, but what Alan Dershowitz did was to take that one step further and say, um, not only must it be a criminal offense, but if the president does something in hopes of, of seeking his reelection as the quid pro quo in some sort of, uh, you know, this for that, that can't be enough because if he truly believes that he is, uh, his election is in the best interest of the public, then he is acting uh, to serve as president. That is absolute, utter nonsense. Um, and, and let me uh, share an analogy, and I, it's not an original one. I read it somewhere and I can't remember, but there are a number of them flying around. And this to me was the most apt. You know, take, you know, so what law professors do, like Alan Dershowitz, is uh, take a claim and then try to extend the logic to some other scenario to demonstrate how absurd it is. And the best one I saw was this. Imagine if a president said to Israel, hey, Israel, we are happy to give you military aid, but we're not going to give it to you unless you do me a favor. And here's the favor. I want you to accuse my political opponent of anti-Semitism. I want you to do a full court press, social media, public statements. I want the president to say it out loud. And uh, if you do that, then I'm going to share this aid with you. I think that example helps us demonstrate what was actually going on in Ukraine. It was really the same thing. I want you to make it a public announcement that you're investigating my opponent. And in fact, you don't even need to do the investigation because all I really care about is that public announcement. I think that that analogy explains why this just cannot be. This is an abuse of power. This is a president using his office and using the power, that leverage of that military aid and holding it up or releasing it in exchange for a personal political favor. Um, and so it can't stand the argument that uh, Alan Dershowitz, even as clarified, I think, is is utter nonsense. And as uh, Adam Schiff said the other night, if truth doesn't matter and if that's what it's come to, then all is lost. And I think sort of adjacent to the argument that, oh, it can't possibly be a quid pro quo or an abuse of power if the president legitimately believed that uh, it was in the national interest for him to be elected. But 
right next to that, the sidecar argument, and, and this is the one that I think Patrick Philbin completely associated himself with, was uh, the argument that, well, once there's mixed motives, you know, it's really not our place to determine whether uh, the intent was there. Uh, let's play that for a minute because it's slightly different from the claim that if the president wants to get elected, it can't be illegal. It's totally unacceptable to start getting into the field of saying, well, we're going to impeach the president and remove him from office by putting him on the psychiatrist's couch and trying to get inside his head to find out, was it 48 percent this motive and 52 the other, or did he have some other rationale? No, if it's a legitimate inquiry in the national interest, that's the end of it. And you can't be saying that we're going to impeach the president, remove him from office, decapitate the executive branch of the government, disrupt the functioning of the government of the country in an election year by trying to parse out subjective motives and which percentage of the motive was this good motive or some other motive, something like that. If it's a legitimate inquiry in the national interest, if that possibility is there, if the national interest is there, that's the end of it. And so, Barb, I guess my question is, if we I'm going to try to characterize this argument as generously as I can. But I think that what Philbin and Dershowitz are are claiming there is that if 99 percent of the reason for withholding the aid from Ukraine in Donald Trump's mind was uh, corrupt and to promote his own electoral fortunes, but 1% was for a good motive, which is that he wanted uh, to really fight corruption in Ukraine, then ours is not to probe uh, that mixed motive. We just have to default into acquittal. That That's the argument, right? It is. And one of the things that uh, I think makes lawyers so enraged about this is it misstates the law and practice, and a lawyer like Patrick Philbin knows better. Um, so, The way it misstates the law is in a bribery case, a jury would be instructed that mixed motive is sufficient to convict someone. You must find that they acted corruptly. And so, for example, if you have, say, a city council member who is charged with voting in a particular way to approve a public contract, um, and he received a bribe for doing that. The contractor gave him $10,000 to vote in favor of awarding the trash hauling contract to this particular contractor. Even if he says, you know, I still think he was the best contractor. He offers a pretty good service and at a pretty good rate. But yeah, I also got $10,000 for my for my vote. That's still bribery because he acted corruptly. It doesn't matter if there was also some pure motive. If he did it for a sinister purpose, uh, to, to re- for the purpose of receiving this bribe, an improper purpose. And let's not forget what President Trump did here. It wasn't that, um, well, providing military aid not only helps Ukraine, but it will help me get reelected because that looks good in the public interest. No doubt politicians do things all the time in part because it will help them with particular constituencies. But what President Trump was doing was not some legitimate act to advance a national interest because it might help some particular constituency that he needed to get reelected. It was to do something that's completely illegal, to smear Joe Biden. That is not to advance the interests of some particular electorate. So, okay, so that's the legal mistake that he is making or legal inaccurate legal argument he's making. The other is in practice. He says, how could we discern what's 48% of his reason or 99% of his reason? 
Jurors are asked to do that every day in courtrooms all across this country. Jurors are instructed as follows. It's impossible to read the mind of another person. However, you have a job of deciding what was the defendant's intent. And here's how you go about doing that. I instruct you to look at the totality of the circumstances, what the defendant did, what the defendant said, and all the other things that were surrounding these facts, and to draw reasonable inferences uh, based on those facts. That is your job as jurors. And so we do it all the time. And to suggest that the Senate is incapable of doing that is inconsistent with that practice that occurs in America every day. And two quick follow-ons, Barb. One is the notion that, I think I wrote about this a little bit on Thursday, but the notion that ours is not to psychologize the president. Like, who are we to probe mens rea? That's just astounding. All of white-collar crime, all of, I mean, we assume that jurors, as you said, are actually really deft at probing mens rea. And kind of over and above that, if you are asking your jurors to figure out mens rea, there's a really good way to do that, which is bring in John Bolton, who can talk about it. So this kind of fails both of those tests. Yeah, absolutely. As you point out, mens rea is an element of every offense. It's a violation of due process to convict someone without a finding of mens rea, whether it's knowingly, willfully, corruptly, whatever the statute requires, a jury has to make a finding on that. And so, and that's why I find it um, not only unpersuasive, but um, disgusting that a lawyer of the caliber of Patrick Philbin is making this argument to Americans counting on the fact that most members of the public don't know that and will find his argument kind of persuasive. Yeah, I guess that's right. How can we possibly read his mind? It happens in in courtrooms across the country every day, and to suggest otherwise is really undermining his duty. Now, we've heard uh, Republicans say, I don't need any more facts. I, uh, the, it was the responsibility of the, the House to gather these facts at the impeachment stage, and uh, I, I have all we need. And how can they say they have a mountain of evidence um, when they're now asking for more evidence? Well, it's because we don't have a neutral finder of fact here. What we have is a fact finder who has said they are predisposed to find the president um, not removable on the basis of what they know. All right, well, if you don't have enough information, uh, you have the opportunity to get more information to discern the president's intent. And and this is not a fishing expedition. We know from John Bolton and reports about his book that he's got direct evidence about what the president's intent was uh, and what he admitted to him. We also know that Mick Mulvaney is someone who has admitted that the president was acting as a, a quid pro quo. You know, he walked it back later, uh, but we know from his statements at a press conference that he said that uh, President Trump was using one thing to get another, and his excuse was, it happens all the time in foreign policy. Well, I agree that leverage happens all the time to extract a promise or, or performance of some conduct that is in the best interest of the country, not to extract a promise or conduct that is in the best interest of an individual candidate. Also, just as a matter of criminal law, you try these cases, I don't. But if somewhere between the grand jury process and the actual criminal trial, new evidence surfaces, material fact witnesses come forward and say, hey, I actually have something to add to the record. Uh, 
you would never say, oh, no, no, can't hear that because we already had uh, a grand jury process, right? I mean, that just it, – it, it both defies logic but also seems to really profoundly defy justice, right? Absolutely. That is not typically the way it's done. Typically, uh, to get an indictment at the grand jury stage where the standard is probable cause, not the higher guilt beyond a reasonable doubt necessary for trial, it's usually presented – in a fairly bare-bones manner, just enough to convince uh, the uh, the grand jurors that there is sufficient evidence here to go forward with a full trial. And that's where the due process, right to confront one's accusers, right to call witnesses, uh, right to cross-examine, that's where that will occur. And so the, the impeachment or indictment stage really is considered just the charging stage. And everybody contemplates that at the trial, that's where we'll get the more fulsome presentation of witnesses for fact finders to make a decision about guilt or innocence, or in this case, removal or, or acquittal. So I want to talk, as we're speaking, just within the last half hour or so, uh, the New York Times has dropped some new revelations. There's yet more uh, uh, evidence uh, from John Bolton's book of even earlier conversations between the president. Presumably Giuliani was in the room. Presumably Bolton was in the room, uh, starting to press the case that Rudy Giuliani should be pressuring Ukraine to investigate the Bidens. Uh, Part of me wants to just ask shruggy emoji? Does it matter? You know, yeah. Okay, we have more material facts that seem to prove up the case. And will this make a difference? And part of me wants to say, as you just said, and as we heard Senator Lamar Alexander say on Thursday night, it doesn't matter. We don't need more evidence. We know the case. Uh, is there any reason in your mind that new revelations that come in at noon on Friday will make any kind of difference in Senator's decision to hear witnesses or testimony or new evidence? Well, it should. Uh, As we've seen in the recent weeks, the revelations about uh, Lev Parnas that he has made, um, we've seen reporting about email exchanges at OMB, about uh, the president making this direct order. Uh, We have seen the revelations uh, from John Bolton's book. Um, If I were in the Senate, I would be very concerned that facts are going to continue to trickle out when that book is published in March. Um, and it, the truth has a tendency to come out over time. We're going to know a lot more about this by the time November rolls around, that's for sure. Um, and any senator who votes to acquit without asking to hear for all of the evidence that's available, I think risks being seen as an enabler. And I think risks his or her own reelection or legacy in history as a result. And it it seems that people are making decisions based on short-term political expediency. Maybe it's a fear that President Trump is going to tweet about them or give them a disparaging nickname, which is the way uh, people intimidate jurors. Um, And we worry about that. But if they were thinking long-term about how this will look in their own re-election or how this will look and the pages of history, I think they are really risking their own legacies and also risking uh, uh, the, the history of this country and what gets set as precedent in, in future uh, abuses of power by presidents. 
I have three questions that are all piled up in my brain, but I think the first one I want to ask is just back to the new Bolton revelations. Does it matter at all to you or to anyone that the new revelations Friday afternoon suggest that Pat Cipollone is in the room, is involved in these conversations? I, I talked to Neil Eggleston, former White House counsel, on the last podcast, and he seemed to think, no, it's okay that the office of White House counsel is acting on the president's defense team. Now it feels a little hinkier than that, right? Now we actually have somebody, White House counsel, the guy who wrote all these letters <laughs> declaiming, you know, absolute immunity and perfect privilege. And he's also in the room. He's a fact witness now. What What am I missing? What? Why is this appropriate? Well, generally, it is considered unethical for a lawyer to handle a case as a lawyer where he is also a witness to that case. It's also just a bad idea. It creates some bad impressions and I think an, uh, some assumptions of bias that a lawyer will try to act in such a way or advance arguments that makes him look good, that uh, covers for his own any potential misconduct or poor decisions that he has made in the past. In fact, I know that uh, the counsel to the House Democrats sent a letter that was made public in the last week or so. I think it was sent uh, January 21st or thereabouts, maybe a week or so ago, alerting Pat Cipollone to this fact. Hey, Mr. Cipollone, um, do we have this wrong? Uh, weren't you uh, um, involved in some of the facts that gave rise to this incident? Shouldn't you perhaps be recusing yourself here and letting others handle this? I think his response has been that my involvement has been so subtle and so minor uh, as not to uh, be involved in a major way in these facts. I think as we learn more that his involvement is more pervasive than we thought before, the closer we get to it looking like an ethical violation for him, I suppose the consequence for that is with uh, the bar of the state where he is licensed. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. What, I ask, could possibly go wrong with November's election? So I've got two scenarios that really worry me. Imagine a Florida 2000 type situation with Trump in the White House. Then those precincts can't be counted. A pretty wide scale voter purge. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I cover the courts and the law for Slate. I'm Rick Hassan, an election law professor at UC Irvine. And together on Slate's Amicus podcast, we're bringing you stories from Rick's brand new book, Election Meltdown. We're looking at the issues straining public trust in American elections. And we've been asking civil rights lawyers, public officials, local journalists, and disinformation experts for their election doomsday scenarios. Imagine deep fake the night before an election. A scenario in which people did leave the internet and take much more physical action. Our system is only going to work if people have enough confidence in it that they can accept the results. We're not asking these questions so we all spiral into despair, but instead to think about what we could do now, before November, to protect the most important thing we do as Americans, voting. 
of course, if you want to spiral into despair, that's totally on you. But if you want to be part of this unbelievably important conversation, do join us in Washington, D.C. on February 19th for the Amicus Election Meltdown live show featuring former Florida gubernatorial candidate Andrew Gillum, MacArthur Genius Fellow and Vice President of the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative, Danielle Citron, and the director of the ACLU's Voting Rights Project, Dale Ho. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets. And now back to our conversation with Professor Barb McQuaid, who teaches criminal law at the University of Michigan. You mentioned you're a little bit worried in addition to the outcome of this actual impeachment trial, setting precedents for future impeachment trials. And part of me a little bit wants to push back because, of course, there are no precedents for impeachment trials. It seems as though impeachment trials are kind of governed on the fly. I think if we've learned anything, the precedent is whatever Mitch McConnell wants it to be. Uh, We don't actually derive meaningful legal precedents, right, from the Andrew Johnson or Bill Clinton impeachment trials. We just say there are a bunch of Senate rules. They're supposed to govern. They largely govern govern except when they don't. And so I guess I want to ask what the precedential value of, say, arguments like Alan Dershowitz's arguments or Pat Philbin's arguments that if the president uh, does it for complicated reasons, it's not impeachable. Does that have any actual constitutional precedential value on the next impeachment? I mean, let's assume that uh, Republicans want to impeach the next president who was a Democrat uh, because they wore a tan suit. Are anything uh, that is being said or done right now in the Senate going to be binding on anyone? So I think you raise a good point that in terms of technical legal precedent, uh, we must decide a certain case because of the concept of stare decisis and that we follow prior case law. And this is the law that has been established in impeachment cases. I think probably not there. But I do think that when uh, conduct occurs, it sets some norms. And especially when the Senate blesses or ratifies it by permitting that behavior to go unchecked and not uh removing the president from office. For example, in this instance, uh, President Trump, quote, fought all the subpoenas. So at the impeachment stage, rather than, as Richard Nixon did, turn over documents and recognize that Congress, as a co-equal branch of government, has the power to review documents of the president, to uh, call to testify as witnesses, people who work for the president. Instead, President Trump just stonewalled across the board. Nope, nobody's coming. You're you're not getting any documents. If, as a result of that process, Article 2 of the impeachment articles alleges that this is obstruction of Congress, if he is allowed to get away with that, I think you've just seen the playbook for future presidents. Don't ever give them anything because you saw what happened to Nixon. He, He was forced to resign. Trump, look at the way he played it. He just refused. He refused to recognize a co-equal branch of government, and he prevailed. That's the way you win. And so I I worry that um, if the Senate ratifies this behavior, then we're just going to see more of it in the future. That leads me actually to, you wrote a really uh, smart piece in the Post this week about 
uh, executive privilege and whether maybe the privilege had been waived when uh, Donald Trump sort of went after John Bolton about the substance of some of Bolton's allegations. But I do think at the heart of what you wrote is this really important point. Again, it's the same point Neil Eggleston made on the last show, which is up until this administration, this was actually governed by a really subtle dance of accommodations, that it was not done by fiat on either side, that claims of privilege, claims of uh, uh, immunity were largely worked out by intra-branch negotiations. And you make that point in your article that when you end that, when one side simply says, I'm taking all my information, I'm going home, best of luck to you in the courts. By the way, we're going to argue in the courts that this is non-justiciable. That actually isn't just a kind of bit by bit question of what does privilege mean? What does immunity mean? That is an all out war on a process that has actually worked behind the scenes uh, for decades, if not centuries, right? It is. And it is for that reason that we have so little case law on these matters, because typically the legislative and executive branch will work out some sort of resolution. Uh, Perhaps the executive branch won't give everything that Congress is looking for, but they might get enough that they can proceed with their investigation. And so what President Trump is doing here is is to say, um, not only am I not going to give it to you voluntarily, but you don't have the courts as a resort either, because I'm going to argue that this is a political question, which is, as you said, uh, not justiciable, which means I just win. You know, Ordinarily, our tripartite form of government is set up kind of as a game of rock, paper, scissors. Everybody has the ability to check the other in some way and so that no one branch can run amok. But uh, President Trump, by not being held accountable by the Senate here, um, has has uh, prevailed. His, his rock has crushed not only scissors, but also crushed paper. And that just can't, uh, isn't the way the framers intended for things to work. Um, and so I think going forward, Courts are either going to have to delve into these political questions, and they're also going to have to pick up their game. It's so slow. They're able to uh, – the, the president was able to drag out and stall and slow walk all of these lawsuits, uh, you know, with regard to Don McGahn, who was called to testify before the House. Um, he was compelled to testify. President Trump blocked it, uh, filed a lawsuit, and we still don't have a resolution of the outcome of that. Um, And by the time we do get a resolution, it really will be too late to have any impact on whatever efforts President Trump wants to make to interfere with an election. And Barb, not to torture your metaphor, but there's something actually fundamental going on that is also a shift, which is that rock that is, you know, the executive branch simply crushing the other branch's prerogatives here actually gets weaponized toward the end of this week where we have senators saying, well, you know, we're going to have if we let if we call witnesses, if we allow for anything to go forward, you know, then it's just going to be like the rock is just going to break all the windows, right? Because then the Senate it's going to take forever and the Senate is going to be all jammed up and this is going to take months. And there's a weird way in which that, again, announcement by fiat, we are not cooperating, has actually turned into one of the strongest arguments for Republican senators to just end the trial quickly. Yeah. In fact, Lamar Alexander, who's announced that he does not want to see any witnesses referred to that article of impeachment as frivolous, that the president, uh, by asserting his constitutional privileges, should not be subject 
uh, to uh, impeachment or removal. Um, that was the argument of Lamar Alexander. But if if not, then what is the remedy when a president just simply says, I'm taking my ball and going home and you can't do anything to stop me? I suppose one argument that Republicans have made is you should have fought these battles in the House before bringing it to trial in the Senate. Exhausted all of your remedies. So in other words, gone to court, taken it all the way up to the Supreme Court. If they ruled against you at that point, then perhaps you could have made this an article of impeachment. I think the response to Democrats there is, by the time we would have done that, the president would have been successful in running out the clock, we would be past the election, and then his efforts to interfere with the election would have succeeded before we could do anything to stop him. So if there's one thing to examine, I suppose, in going forward and how do we address this in the future, I would submit that in these presidential subpoena matters, perhaps we need to put things on an expedited track so that they can be resolved very quickly. I mean, you know, courts are not really equipped to do that. They like to have briefing schedules and oral argument and ponder and uh, issue long written opinions. Um, But we've seen them do it in the past. In the Pentagon Papers case, that case was uh, worked its way up to the Supreme Court and a decision was made, I think, in seven days. So in extraordinary situations, it can be done. And I think it should be done in these kinds of cases. Um, before we leave this question of um, privilege and uh, absolute immunity claims, uh, it, it's worth, again, just flicking back at your article, you made the point that we haven't actually had uh, assertions of uh, privilege. We've just had the threat uh, to assert the privilege. Uh, what happens now for purposes of, you know, I guess, assuming uh, uh, the trial is over, uh, we are going to have this very academic conversation, which I think you're trying to engage in with your piece about what uh, executive privilege looks like. Uh, but is it all perfectly academic now? No, I don't think so. I think that if the House wanted to, they could still call John Bolton or Mick Mulvaney or others, subpoena them to come testify and flesh out in more detail what is known. It could be uh, yet another impeachment. There could be a second one. You know, politically, that seems a bit untenable, but I think that uh, the House has the authority to conduct hearings on any matter for which it has the power to legislate or impeach or take some other action. And so perhaps just to to shore up the system, they could call in John Bolton uh, to testify or for consideration of another impeachment and ask him. Now, that's where uh, the president could invoke executive privilege or what he has referred to as absolute immunity, meaning that the witness need not even appear at all, not only with regard to particular questions, but not even need to show up. That's a place where there could be uh, litigation over executive privilege. If uh, the, if the House were to call John Bolton and President Trump were to assert privilege, the House could compel him to testify, which would require then President Trump to resort to the courts to seek to enforce the privilege. And I think that's where this argument could be made that President Trump has waived the privilege by his tweets where he has said in great detail what John Bolton did and did not say to contradict Uh, the reporting that John Bolton in his book says that President Trump uh, said he was tying aid to Ukraine uh, to investigations of his political rivals. I wonder if we can talk for a minute about John Roberts. I think that there was 
a longstanding consensus that John Roberts was not going to handle this impeachment in the manner of, you know, Chief Justice Salmon Chase in 1868, you know, leaping in, breaking ties, making judgments, calling witnesses. We all knew, I think, that John Roberts was going to follow the William Rehnquist playbook and do as little as possible and do it well, uh, which is Rehnquist's famous quote from how he handled the Clinton impeachment. I wonder if, uh, A, you've seen any surprises in John Roberts' conduct over the last couple of weeks, and then B, whether you have any reason to believe that he is going to engage any heroics in the next 24 hours with regard to either calling witnesses or breaking ties or doing anything dramatic. No, you know, John Roberts is one who famously testified during his own confirmation hearing that he believed that the job of a judge is to call balls and strikes. Now, when you're on the Supreme Court, you actually have a whole lot more power than that because your worldview certainly influences the decisions that you make in any case, and that's why we see so many 5-4 decisions on things. Um, But when you're a district court judge, a trial judge, uh, it, it is a little more like the role of an umpire of calling balls and strikes. But I guess I would say that when a judge is presiding at a trial, typically he will not allow one side or the other to cheat. And one of the things that the Senate rules permitted was for lawyers to make arguments without direct rebuttal. And so we heard Trump's lawyers say things like Republicans were not permitted into the secret bunker where they conducted depositions, which is a lie. Uh, The so-called secret bunker is simply a secure room in uh, the Capitol building where classified information can be discussed. And Republicans were not only invited, they attended. And so... I I think that ordinarily there'd be an opportunity for the prosecution to object to such a mischaracterization and the judge would correct the record and perhaps even sanction lawyers who uh, made misrepresentation of facts. I think because of the rules that were in place here, John Roberts was not permitted to take that kind of active role. And as a result, I think in the eyes of at least some members of the public, me, um, it makes him appear complicit in this unfair trial proceeding. I think that's why Elizabeth Warren asked the question Thursday about are you worried about the way the public uh, trust in the court may be eroded uh, because of your involvement in the trial here? And he, he read the question out loud to his credit. I don't know that that was the right forum to call him out on it, but um, I, I share her views a little bit that I think his reputation and the Uh, reputation of the court suffered a little bit for his involvement in this trial, which has been, I think, a little bit of a mockery of justice. My my husband, who is a sculptor and not a court watcher, described to me this morning Robert's face as he was reading that question as akin to the blue guy at the restaurant when Grover is the waiter and that blue guy with the eyebrows who's just looking completely aggrieved because he just wants his damn soup. And I was like, yeah, that's actually pretty apropos of what he looked like. The grumpy blue guy. Um, Let's play that clip just for one second. This is Elizabeth Warren's question to the Chief Justice about, you know, the dignity of the courts. The question from Senator Warren is for the House managers. At a time when large majorities of Americans have lost faith in government, does the fact that the Chief Justice is presiding over an impeachment trial in which Republican senators have thus far refused to allow witnesses or evidence contribute to the loss of legitimacy of the Chief Justice, the Supreme Court, and the Constitution? 
Okay, so let's agree, ouch, and I think Adam Schiff in his response tried to backfill a little bit if the attempt was to call out the chief justice or embarrass him. Adam Schiff was quick to say, oh, no, 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 nobody doubts that you are in it on the side of justice. But I I guess I want to ask you as somebody who, uh, like myself, has been perfectly captive (laughs) over a career to the idea that courts are places of truth and justice. They are places of neutral fact-finding that process presumably exists to get to the truth. Was this whole trial ultimately really devastating for those of us who believe in trials, uh, who believe in judges and witnesses and that words have meaning and that precedent is precedential? Is this in the end, sort of bracket whether as a political matter it was um, uh, risky and and ill-conceived, because I think, as you point out, we may not know that till next November. But I want to sort of say, as a lawyer, do you feel like justice with a capital J took a hit with this trial? I do. I, I think one thing that's important to remember is that impeachment is a political process, which is different from the role of trials in courts where witnesses matter, truth matters, and a lawyer who misrepresents the facts is very quickly corrected and disciplined if they do that. Truth really matters in a courtroom. Here, it is a political question, and Justice Roberts found himself, I think, in the uncomfortable position of presiding in an arena that is very different from the one he comes from uh, of courts where uh, it it is all about truth and there is no uh, room for um, this sort of political advocacy. But uh, let's not forget that the word that is used in the Constitution is that the Senate shall have the sole power to try all cases of impeachment. Try suggests trial. And I think that there are certain things about trials that we expect, um, even in in the impeachment context. And here, where the Senate uh, has disregarded the value of witnesses and evidence, or where, as Lamar Alexander said, I don't need witnesses. I know what happened. And I still think it's not impeachable uh, because um, the president has the ability to engage in this kind of misconduct if he believes it's in the national interest to be reelected. And that uh, when he uh, stonewalled Congress, it was his constitutional prerogative to do that. Um, that is just not consistent with the Constitution that uh, that I know. And so I do think that justice has taken a hit here. And to the extent the public was feeling a lack of confidence or trust in our institutions, I, I think that public trust has taken a big hit here as well. So right before I release you back into the Michigan wilds, let me ask you this final question. We, we don't know what's going to happen between now and tomorrow morning. I had joked to my uh, producer as we were planning this show today that maybe we should just call a Ouija board, you know, just like find some psychic to tell us what is going to happen in the next uh, few days. Do you have, and I should flag that as you and I are talking, we've now had Lisa Murkowski announce that she's not interested in calling witnesses. Uh, do you have any sense of how the next hours and days are going to go in your mind? Well, it seems unlikely at this point there's going to be uh, sufficient votes for witnesses. Uh, so in that case, I imagine that they'll go straight to closing arguments and then take a vote. Uh, it does not appear that uh, there will be 67 votes in favor of removal. And so that will mean that the president is acquitted. And I think that this president will um, take that as a mandate and use it. Um, I'm sure we'll be hearing about it at his rallies uh, between now and November. Um, 
But I, I suppose it also gives Democrats an opportunity to talk about the kind of conduct that the president has engaged in and perhaps give some incentive for voters to correct any wrongs that they perceive were done by the Senate. At the end of the day, it's the voters who have the most power of all, and perhaps it will spark some voter turnout and inspire people to go to the polls. Professor Barbara McQuaid teaches criminal law at the University of Michigan. She served as U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan and served as vice chair of the attorney general's advisory committee, co-chaired its terrorism and national security subcommittee. Watch for her on NBC News and MSNBC, where she serves as a legal analyst. And her writing and Twitter feed have been uh, among the bulwarks of my sanity uh, in the last little while. So, Barb, thank you very much. Very, very much. I know you're super busy, and it's been a pleasure having you on today. Thanks so much, Dolly. My pleasure to be with you. And that's a wrap for this extra special, special, timely, special TikTok version of Amicus. Thank you so much, as always, for listening in. If you want to get in touch, our email, as always, is amicus at slate.com. You can always find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. We love your letters. Today's show was produced by Sarah Birmingham. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Podcasts, and June Thomas is senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. We will be back tomorrow with the second part of our election meltdown series, all about the weakest link in our elections, just straight up incompetence. Until then, thank you for listening. Talk to you soon. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.